and welcome to InsureTech Insider, episode 97. I'm Nigel Walsh. Today's show is a new show where we'll be talking about the latest and greatest happenings in insurance and InsureTech from the past few weeks. Although there's no Sarah, cue small violin, off to pastures new as we said last time, I am of course not on my own and today I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Enser, Director of Research at 11FS. Ben, how are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm I'm fantastic, actually. Is this your first one? It is, isn't it? It's my first InsureTech Insider, yep. So I'm excited to be here, finally. Welcome to the Mad Gang. This is where all the fun starts, is all I can say. Not that I'm biased in any way at all. So let's crack on. We've also been joined by some amazing guests, as always. First up, making a welcome return, we have Sam Fromson, co-founder and COO of ULife. How are you, Sam? I'm really well, thank you very much, Nigel. Thanks for asking. You've had a very busy week, haven't you? Well, which we'll find out a little bit more about later. Before we do that, can you just share quickly what ULife is and does? Sure, with pleasure. So ULife is a life insurance company building the future of insurance. Our mission is to inspire life and basically use financial products as a force for good. Um, ULife uh, provides life insurance to employers. And off the back of that insurance, we also reward employees for living a healthier lifestyle. We reward them with our currency of well-being, with Ucoin. And you can earn Ucoin for walking, practicing mindfulness, meditation, and all of that data ties back in to create a better value and dynamic priced insurance policies. Not wanting to brag, but I am number one on the leaderboard of some of the ULife leaderboards, but we'll come back to that later. Ooh, that's a, that's a high accolade. <laughs> I like my podium position, being that it's Olympics time. Uh, next up, we're joined by Nikki Daniels, founder and chair at Easy Insurance. How are you doing, Nikki? I'm good, thank you, Nigel. I'm glad to hear you're on the podium. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's Olympics week. I'm loving all the sports, so it's no better way to be. And last, but by no means least, uh, delighted to be joined by Ruth Foxblader, partner at Anthemist. How are you doing, Ruth? Doing great, thank you. Right, thank you all for joining. Let us crack on with the show. So first up, I think we've got a a sneak preview of this one as well. But first up, ULife raises $70 million. ULife, as you just heard from Sam, is a London-based startup that aims to incentivize the users to live a healthier lifestyle through a gamified interface and has raised $70 million, which is to date one of the largest Series Bs raised by an insurtech startup in Europe. I was personally delighted to see this when I saw the news come out. So this is great. This puts ULife to be valued at £346 million or £250 million. ULife is currently only live in the UK and is only sold directly to organisations who provide it to their employees. There they saw insurance benefits often just sit on the shelf and never get used. And ULife is set out to change that, making it the policy all about engagement. The app is built by veterans of the gaming industry and encourages users to walk, cycle, meditate and other activities to get around the interface in a healthy way. And they're also able to compare their programs with their co-workers. I think the best person to explain this in way more detail Sam, let's hand it to you for some more insights. Look, Nigel, thanks so much. And we really, we are delighted to be raising this funding and, and bringing the ULife product to more people. We genuinely believe that life insurance is such an important benefit. It's one of those things that sits at the bedrock of your financial stability. If you're caring for dependents, caring for elderly parents, caring for kids, having life insurance is so important. But at the same time, it's also genuinely seen in the market as so boring. People hear life insurance and they just switch off. Employers think about life insurance and they want to, you know, forget that they ever, that, you know, it's not the reason why anyone went into business is to buy life insurance policies for their employees. 
And what we've seen over the last three years of, of selling this product into the market is we're able to create a real positive energy around something that is so important. Turning life insurance into something that gives value back every single day to employees, turning life insurance into something that's understood, appreciated and valued. I love it. And I love the fact you've gamified it. I couldn't agree with you more that people see insurance and see bad and they see life insurance and they go a stage further. Tell us more about the money because it's a huge raise for, for European insurtech. So what are you planning to do with it? Are we seeing new uh, new territories, new products? What are we doing? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, look, we're, we're firing on a lot of cylinders right now, Nigel, and it's, it's a really exciting time for us as a business. And um, on the first place, you know, we're, we're currently serving nearly 400,000 UK employees at big businesses, but we've got such a long way to go. We're closing on 1% of the UK market. We want to get to 10%. And that's something that, you know, we're bulking up our marketing team, bulking up our sales teams, and really ensuring that we've got the infrastructure to deliver on that growth. But in terms of products, that's where we're really excited because when we sell a policy, we're selling to a company. We sell to a company and they roll out the ULife policy to all of their employees. And then we build relationships with those employees. We reward them for healthy living. We reward them for walking, you know, standing on the top of that podium like you are, um, and competition with employees and building that health and well-being narrative into their business. And the next stage for us is to then turn those relationships with employees into opportunities for those employees to buy more products those employees to protect themselves financially in other ways, whether that's buying more life insurance, maybe they've had a child, moved house, they need more life cover, or perhaps that's serving them other products, be it dental, be it health, be it a cash plan, be it travel insurance. And we are seeking to be that trusted insurance provider in the pocket of all of those employees. So that we're very excited about building up our product to really deliver on that mission. Um, and then the other big thing that's in the pipeline for us is expanding into different territories. And we've seen that we can roll out to companies. We've seen that we can, you know, our product is loved and appreciated and enjoyed by the businesses that we've sold to in the UK. And the next step for us um, in, in, terms of, in terms of our global growth ambitions is finding countries which have similar benefits markets, which have a similar way of companies buying things for their employees. Um, and that's a process that we're really excited about and, uh, you know, we're, we're certain is going to be the next stage of growth for the business. I, I love it. And the, the fact that it's, as I said, it's gamified, you're, you're almost appealing to my inner health freak that's, that's broken out as a result of COVID. Ruth, can I come to you and ask what's your perspective on P&C versus life right now? It feels like, never mind the funding bonanza that seems to be going on, but there's lots more going into life insurance as well. Is that what you're seeing in the portfolio or not as much? Not only am I seeing it in the portfolio, the data and the research bears out that life and health, uh, which was historically an underloved space in the insurtech funding landscape, really is getting a lot more attention from investors. I think that you know your insights around uh, the motivating force of the pandemic has opened people's eyes to opportunities and to also acceleration of things like telehealth and trends which we have known are on the horizon and now feel very, very important generally to the general population. And therefore, that interest is certainly filtering into the VC landscape and bearing out in funding. I love that. I think the gamification, I actually saw those that will remember when Aviva built their studios and their garage early on, there was no insurance people in there, but there was gaming people and, and, and lots of others from different walks of life. Ben, I wonder from your insights and research across financial services, 
Have we seen gamification take off in this way? Is it something we can do in other facets of financial services or is it only where there's got a net benefit to the end the end organization, i.e. the insurer in this instance? No, I mean, it works across financial services. We've seen dozens of examples in investment management. You know, you can look at someone like Robin Hood trying to use elements of sort of leveling up and so on to encourage trading. Now, whether that's good for traders is a different question. Or you've seen it in banking. I mean, banks like BBVA have been using game mechanics to encourage people to, you know, make transactions in online banking or mobile banking and teach them how to use services. Um, I think really the issue is that the industry as a whole has ignored the potential of, of game mechanics. People sort of slightly look down on gaming in the industry or in parts of the industry. Maybe it's more the traditional older executives who sort of think that gaming is somehow juvenile. Um, yet actually pretty much anyone born after 1980 and a lot of people born beforehand play games and love them. And it's a really good way of motivating people because people either like you, Nigel, want to be top of the podium and beat everyone else, or they just want to improve their own scores and beat themselves. Um, so it's hugely motivating. It's a really interesting one, the, the beating yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of different insights you can get on on your body and what you do and everything else. Is it applicable to all though? Because I look at my 12-year-old son, who seems to be addicted to Minecraft, and I'm sitting there going, I still don't understand that. I look at it and like, it's, and it's alien. Nikki, I don't know. Is this something that's available to everyone? I mean, if I looked at my mum or my parents or even my sister, who's a couple of years older than me, I think she'd look at it and go, why would I bother doing that? You're right. I think there is a generational divide, but I actually think that we're older and older and older now. You know, I'm old and there are some games I absolutely love playing and I play to beat myself. I want the high score. I want the, you know, the, the gold cup of that week on whatever it is. And it doesn't matter whether that's Candy Crush or anything else. I mean, there's a generation of 50 plus playing Candy Crush. And I do think that Ben makes a really good point about we're an old fashioned industry in insurance and we're led by old fashioned people who think that gaming is something that people do locked in their bedrooms on these rocker chairs. But in actual fact, what we're really talking about is customer engagement, aren't we? We're talking about a reason for them to come back to us, to visit our apps, to visit our websites. It's really about that total engagement. It's not just really gamification, is it? Sam, you want to jump in? Look, if you had to guess what's our most engaged demographic of all of the ULife app users, anyone got any ideas? What do you think our most engaged demographic might be? 50 plus. Spot on, Nikki. It's a 45 to 55 demographic. And it's not only yeah. you know, people in, in London or people in tech hubs. We've rolled out to thousands, tens of thousands of people who are across the country working in manufacturing industry, working in you know blue collar roles. And some of our most engaged demographics, people who are earning Ucoin enthusiastically, competing on steps, and, and progressing through levels of our game, 45 to 50 year olds um, in the north of England. So this is not just something that's happening to cool kids in Shoreditch. This is something that is a meaningful movement that can really impact the lives of, of anyone it touches um, and people around the country. But interestingly, Sam, do you think that demographic and age group, you see, I, I don't consider myself to be a gamer in, in a grown up way. I'm not sure that people understand. We're calling it gamification, but I suspect that the end users see it as something they enjoy to do. I'm not sure they would consider ULife a game that they play in the same way. Would you agree? And that's spot on. That's exactly right, Nick. And we've done some user research around this as well. We are deliberately seeking to take people one step at a time on their own health and well-being journey. We're not trying to put anyone off with it being overly aggressive, you know, run a marathon tomorrow or being, you know, too game intense, you know, getting really, really technical and really um, niche. The idea is to make what we're doing really accessible 
allow anyone to take one next step on their health and well-being journey to push themselves that little bit more and to do it in a way that's able to draw in those people who traditionally never saw either gaming or health as something that was on their priority list. Have you got any insights from the work you've done pre-pandemic and post-pandemic? Because I think there's been a lot of people, you know, people said you either turned into a fitness monster or an alcoholic during the pandemic, depending if you've got work, you know, uh, uh, schooling at home or anything else. And, and there's been lots of facets in the middle, of course, as well. It's been a tough time for everyone. Have you got any insights from the work that you've been doing about how you've seen that demographic or user group change during that period? A couple of key things, Nigel. The first is the importance of it in people's minds, the importance of health and well-being in corporate mindset. Now, that's some one of the things that really driven our, our growth over the last 18 months is companies buying in you know, a service like ULife, which layers on this health and well-being alongside insurance and that's one of the reasons why we've you know seen really strong growth um, and in terms of how people are using it it's been amazing um people walking a lot more people walking at different times in the day previously we saw a spike as people maybe walked to the tube station or walked to work and then a spike at 5 30 as people walked home people are distributing their movement throughout the day going for a break taking 10 minutes taking a break practicing mindfulness um, at lunchtime practicing mindfulness at 11.30, we get a real spike in the mid-morning, people using meditation apps. And it's fascinating to see how I see that as a really positive thing because people are adapting their health and well-being behaviours to the lifestyle that works for them rather than being forced into an office environment which bookends everyone into the same infrastructure, into the same rhythm. Um, and if people are able to develop their own rhythm of what works for them, they're able to, first of all, move and, and and take breaks in a way that is uh, much more healthy. I, I have to say, I, I genuinely miss my three and a half thousand steps walk to the train station and my three and a half thousand steps on the other end. Not that I'm counting, but you do realise how stationary you've become in this new world. So I do think the the nudge to, to do something different is interesting. Ruth, back to you, if I may, very quickly. Do you see this then as a emerging of different sectors as you come together from life insurance, encroaching slightly into health. I'm sitting here with blood tests and continuous glucose monitors and so and so much more. Does this mean they all start to munge together into one somehow? We have a, a very different segment or they're all going to remain separate? Yeah, I think that, so our thesis at Anthemus, and first I want to congratulate Sam because I haven't had a chance to yet. He, you know, your life is an Anthemus portfolio company and we're delighted and proud of this fundraising event and, and what's coming in the future. So absolutely, our thesis at Anthemus is, is what we have called embedded finance and you know embedded insurance, where we see intersections of other sectors as being relevant places for people to buy and experience protection products. And certainly you know, there it behooves a life insurer to ensure that the people that it's insuring are healthy, you know, just from an economic motivation. And so the fact that we can bring technology to bear to create experiences which are, you know, games or not games, depending on your perspective, you know, tapping into sort of core human motivations and behaviors, uh, helping people, helping people be safer, helping people be protected at points sort of in situ in their lives where it's relevant, really maps to how we're thinking about um, the emerging consumer and emerging trends in the insurance industry. I can't, I can't wait to see that evolve. I genuinely think um, your thesis, I, I'm not going to say your thesis is wrong. I think it's absolutely spot on. And I can't wait to see this whole new category evolve. I still feel back to our very first point that maybe 
the word insurance needs a needs a revamp or the word life needs a revamp because it's actually about unlocking yourself or being a build building a better healthier version of you ultimately and you know we all know we're going to live longer for those that, that have kids now you know the average age is going to be 100 and there's rumors that the first person to live to 150 has already been born so you know those things scare me in itself which means unless we do something about it now then we're going to be in a lot of trouble or a lot of pain later on. So it's uh, it's fascinating to see. Uh, Sam, I'm, I'm delighted for the raise. I'm delighted for the business that you've got. It's amazing. And I can't wait to see what you, what you do going forward. I will cheekily say one other thing, and that's a huge congrats to you as well, because I think from LinkedIn, you said you officiated your first wedding uh, at the weekend as well. So massive off on that. It's wonderful news. Thank it's such you, a mix to see. Nigel. When I'm not uh, running you life, I also practice as a rabbi. Um, and that's something that's a real added pleasure in life and something that brings a lot of meaning, ability to help people in different ways. I love it's kind it. of a cradle to grave service, you know, officiate <laughs> at funerals, provide the life insurance in between, you know, it all comes together. I'd, I'd rather see you at a mitzvah rather than a shiver, but let's see what we do, right? So, uh, but congratulations. I was lovely to see you. Lovely bit of uh, bright news in, uh, on LinkedIn this week. So congratulations on both. Really, really, really good. Let me move on to the next story, uh, which is actually linking quite nicely to our theme of being uh, relatively healthy and active. And that's um, CycleGuard research finds that 80% of U- UK cycling staycationers are riding without insurance. In a surprise to absolutely no one, and thankfully Hannah hasn't put anything in here about e-scooters, but we'll come on to that, I'm sure. Um, as we still all sit here in various shades of lockdown and restriction, Britain is expected to experience a biking boom this summer as millions of families, myself included, turn to staycations for their summer holidays. Two-fifths of Brits are planning a summer staycation this year, and of those planning a trip, almost half said that they or someone in the party will be taking or hiring a bike. My wife has reliably informed me that we are driving about three hours away and hiring bikes for this four in the garage. I won't even go into that conversation, but anyway, we're hiring bikes. I lost. Um, This estimates 12.4 million bikes being used on staycations across the UK this summer. And for many, this will be the first time they're using a bike whilst on holiday. And according to their research, 23% of those planning to cycle themselves have not done so on vacation before. Now, as a very active cyclist, I can tell you how frustrating it is to either ride out behind or with someone that's not been on a bike for a very long time. It's a very different experience. Uh, despite these figures, 49% of holidaymakers are not planning on taking out any additional or specialist insurance. And many will rely on health insurance, but of course, many policies won't cover injury, accident, or bike theft. Where do we even start? Who wants to admit this first? Ruth, I'm going to come to you first. Is this something that you do? Are you a, are you a staycationer going to hire a bike or no? Um no comment. Uh, no, I'm teasing. Yeah, I think I think I could be I could be someone who who rents a bike. Uh, I'm currently in New York City, so I'm not taking any chances on that. But I think broadly, you know, there's been a little bit of a reset in thinking about travel insurance, and you know, not to kind of be a dog with a bone here, but the pandemic has most certainly you know caused us to think differently about different industries and about our health and our well-being as we move around, if we can move around. And so I think this is a really big opportunity for uh, startups to refocus people's effort and energy on non-traditional travel products that feel relevant because everything kind of feels new. 
Does it go back to your point though about embedded finance and embedded insurance? So what point should I, should I have to think about this? Should I think about it at the, you know, I remember vacations of old when we were allowed to travel, I'd go to the hotel, I'd hire a car and I'd get insurance at the car. Should it not be the same for bikes when I'm hiring bikes? Should it all be embedded into Yeah, the- absolutely. And, and it is already. I mean, we, we have um, some fantastic companies in the portfolio, um, you know, a company called Cover, which is doing this in uh, kind of the shared mobility space. Uh, so certainly we, we definitely see, you know, companies like Flock who are doing this for drones and now for electric fleets. It is much more relevant to propose insurance products to people at the moment that it is most relevant to them. And so certainly I think that there will be a massive opportunity for insurance in an embedded way. But I think there's also a mindset shift where people are extremely conscious of risk and they're extremely conscious of their health. And so it's about capitalizing on technology and sort of delivering things via API and um, embedding product in other platforms. But it's also about speaking to people in the language which is current to them. Uh, and that language is the language of health and safety, for better or for worse, during the pandemic. So, yeah, Ruth, I'm I'm really interested because I completely agree with you and your point about it should be embedded. And, you know, for somebody who's hiring bikes, the point to offer them insurance is as they're hiring the bikes, do you want some insurance with that? But you said people are really aware of the risk. Isn't the issue with cycling insurance that actually people don't appreciate the risk? You know, I'm just going to ride a bike. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? It doesn't sound that dangerous. And that may be why people aren't getting insurance, because they don't see that there's a big risk to cycling along with a family along a road with lots of cars. Yeah, I mean, there's human psychology, I guess, is is different for everybody and, and different people have different levels of risk tolerance. And so that's a, in the traditional way where it costs a lot of money to capture a customer and you're not using technology, you might not even bother because you would make the assumption that most people uh, feel safe enough and like their odds. I think what I've noticed, uh, and certainly what I've noticed in our portfolio is that across the board, individuals and you know, businesses are buying more insurance than they did prior to the pandemic. I think that the consciousness of risk is heightened in this pandemic environment. And so certainly there's still work to do. Uh, There's still, you know, ways that you have to communicate intelligently about the product. The product itself needs to be intelligent. But I do think that there that we're at a moment in time where people are questioning their old ways of being and their former behaviors. And there is an opportunity to help protect people and make them safer in a way that, you know, our consciousness just wasn't there, you know, 24 months ago. Nikki, you could jump in. I agree with what Ruth is saying. I think fundamentally, however, the issue here is around product. I mean, I know I frequently come back to product, but if you look at travel insurance in particular, it won't be long before insurers will put cycling under hazardous activity. You know, if we're going to have 48% of whatever the the number was of people going on holiday renting bikes, that's going to become a hazardous activity and insurers will naturally want to withdraw from that. And I also think that if you are talking about people hiring bikes on holiday, that something should come, it should come with the bike. In the same way as when I hire a car, I have cover. Now, I might want to extend it to personal accident in the same way as I might want to reduce the excess on a car hire. 
But if you offer it as something extra that person has to purchase, they will do this juggling act between four of us, five pound a day for the insurance. Oh, I'm not going to do it. It needs to be built in. Maybe that's based on whether they're in an, in an environment like a center parks where they're you know not going to perhaps meet car drivers. But I do think that we need to think about that as truly embedded, not hidden, but truly embedded. It's really interesting. I'm one of the individuals that gets to a car hire rental in, in the US or whatever else. And they say, would you like to buy the $20 waiver to save the $1,000 fee? And I'm like, nah, I've not crashed in 20 years. I'm not going to do it now. Never knowing, obviously, I'm in different territory or whatever else. And and touch wood, I've, I've never needed it or used it or whatever else. I do, I, I do wonder about your point about product because... If I don't have cycle insurance for my family and I cycling around the local woods where I am here, why would I need it somewhere else? And do I actually know what I'm going to be covered for? And, to, you know, in the last 48 hours, I've, I've heard of two horrible leisure cycling crashes that have led to life-changing injuries. And they just scare the life out of me. And you think to yourself, my God, what does it actually do? You know, a friend of mine, a, friend of, a very good friend of mine is now in a wheelchair as a net result of a freak cycling accident that no one ever predicts or, 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 or sees. And I wonder how much, we always get back to when I'm involved in this, how much education we have to do about the things that could go wrong that you want to protect for, you can afford to protect for. Flipping around slightly though, maybe Sam, is this something that you change into the, hey, if you're going away on holiday and you're not going to get your steps or your exercise, don't forget you can still exercise while you're on holiday and then you life jump into travel or extend the travel or you life plus that includes bike cover while you're wandering the streets of New York or elsewhere. Yeah, that's exactly what we see as important, being the trusted insurance app in people's pockets, Nigel. So that's, you know, a cool part of our long-term strategy is we're there for people, whether they're, you know, we sit, they're in the airport and that, that's a great moment to purchase travel insurance or whether they are, you know, they're, they're going on holiday and it's a time to purchase cycle insurance. If you're there for people, you've got a trusted relationship. They see you as a, a provider who's, they, they've got a positive value-additive relationship with, then you can be there for them in that moment when they need it without the friction of, oh, who am I going to buy this from? Where they kind of try and rip me off? Is this a fair policy? Are they going to actually pay out when I need them to? And and really overcoming that trust barrier that really is um, something that, that that stops people from purchasing the right cover when they need it. And I think, and I think you're absolutely right. That's part of the whole process that says when I go on holiday and I've booked my staycation or, or my UK vacation, people don't know what they're going to be offered. You know, we disappear off up to Cumbria and we suddenly go, oh, we could go paddleboarding. Never been on a paddleboard in my life. Um, but it was like, oh, you know, it's sunny. It's And there's lots of things that happen to people when they have a different type of vacation. And I think we're seeing that change. And so somebody who can provide that cover on the click of a button that says, oh, today I'm going paddleboarding. Tomorrow I'm renting four bikes. I might be quite controversial in the next statement, I think. I might not be. But I've never been asked, hey, Nigel, do you know how to ride a bike? Even when I've got young kids, I've got, as I say, I've got a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. No one's ever said, do you know how to ride it? Whereas a paddleboard, they might be a bit more conscious to go, even when I've been out on you know, local lakes, whatever else they've gone, have you been out on a lake before? You've got to wear a, a life vest or whatever else. Should we be changing this to mandated? Should this be... Yeah, no, I, I think this was this was the thing that came to mind for me a few minutes ago. A big topic for insurance is always whether it's compulsory or not. And I think 
people can rationalize a lot of things. And so absent having a, a compulsory insurance product associated, it's it's unlikely that the majority of people, you know, would opt to pay more for an experience which might already be costing them a lot of money. And so there is the ease uh, which we talked about in terms of embedding and using technology. There's the messaging, there's the price, and then I think that there's this this legal layer. And like you, I have um, I have small children. I've sent them to camp this summer. A couple of them required insurance for camp, and for those, I bought travel insurance. And the and the camps that didn't, I didn't. Now, one my son, who's 11, is at surf camp in California right now. He doesn't know how to surf. You know, I, I I can imagine that it's it's a fairly dangerous activity, having done it a lot myself. And you know, this is a despite sort of uh, an extensive knowledge and understanding of the types of risks that one could encounter, I think you know we often respond to regulation more than sort of good judgment. Which which it sort of brings me on to the whole e-scooter debate, sorry, Nigel. But effectively, tell me what the difference is between riding a cycle as an inexperienced rider and renting an e-scooter. It has wheels. It can kill people. You can do 60 miles an hour through a park on a bicycle. I know you can, Nigel. I know it. And when you think about that in terms of risk, mopeds, bicycles, e-scooters, cars, I don't think it's the same. I don't think you can compare the level of risk, Nicola, though, between an e between an e scooter and a bike, because e scooters are powered devices, and the level of risk inherent to something that's got an engine and can move fast, even if you're not intentionally moving it fast through the power of your legs, is is a very different risk profile. Well, I, honestly, I, I I have moments where I want to write about it, and I just pause myself and go, "Don't do it, Nigel. Don't do it." And my most recent thought was along the lines of, we're not allowed to buy guns in the UK because they're illegal, but we are allowed to buy scooters with a little fine print that says, you must only do this on your own private land. So for the 0.01% of people that are able to do it on their own private land, the rest of them we see whizzing around car parks, down streets or otherwise. And just this week or just last week, I think it was, I saw two people on a scooter. The first guy who was steering it was on the phone. And the lady on the back who was hugging him was smoking a cigarette. I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is just ridiculous. So why are we why are we even selling them in the first place if they are illegal? I mean, we're jumping way off of, of cycle insurance, but surely the owner should be on the store not to sell it if it's illegal in the first place. Ben, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if you want to jump in, Ben, in terms of legality of all this before we before we finish and move on to the next story. But this is crazy, right? Is there a is there a mandate anywhere else that you've seen in financial services go, we can't sell things that are legal? It actually leads us pretty much into the ne- into the next story, which is actually all about sort of retailers' liability. But I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen a mandate, but I haven't tried to look at where scooters are scooters are sort of banned from sale in, in other countries. But I completely agree with you. It is daft that these things are being sold when there is sort of no legal construct around using them. I think the difference between bicycles and scooters is we're seeing people using scooters in cities and on pavements and so on, whereas we were talking about, you know, cycles being used in sort of rural areas, which is a little bit different to taking your family, um, you know, on a, on a cycling holiday. But it, it's, a, it's a fair point. We don't often see bicycles on pavements or sidewalks and if we do they're usually young kids and people aren't worried about them going fast because they're going quite slowly and whatever else but we have seen plenty of examples of reckless i said that reckless e-scooters 
up and down roads or whatever else. But we'll leave that there because Sarah's not here to argue with me. So on that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back very soon. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So next up, we have a US lawsuit could open giant can of worms in Amazon's fight against product recalls. This is from the Insurance Journal. Last week, the US Consumer Product Safety Commission sued Amazon, seeking to convince the company to participate in formal recalls of defective products sold by merchants on their marketplace. This comes in, as in recent years, dozens of people who say they were harmed by products such as exploding hoverboards, I'm thinking California here, Ruth, um, defective batteries or faulty dog collars have sued Amazon for compensation. Amazon argues they are not liable as it's technically the third party sellers that sold the items. And these companies are sometimes based overseas beyond the reach of US jurisdiction. Several courts have previously agreed with Amazon citing product liability laws never contemplated online shopping or digital middlemen. The US Consumer Product Safety Authority is also seeking what would be a precedent setting ruling that Amazon is a distributor of consumer products under federal law. This would upend the commonplace tech industry defense deployed by companies like Facebook, which claim they aren't responsible for what's said, posted, or sold on their platforms. If Amazon were to be held responsible for third-party sellers, this would, amongst other things, have a huge impact on their insurance costs. Now, I'm fascinated by this one because we've all seen the debates over the years about what's been posted on uh, sites like Facebook and others, and saying we're not a news agency, we're just a platform. We've talked about embedded finance on this podcast already. Ruth, I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind, because marketplace and embedded finance go, go side by side to me. Where would, where would you even start with this? Is, is this, is this real? Is this, is this, a, is this, should this be a worry for Amazon in this instance? Yeah, I think it's real. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, I think we're really talking about the same thing as we were talking about in the last story, which is law and regulation catching up with tech. And we've seen tech giants pretty successfully, you know, running circles around regulators, and uh, and you can argue, you know, this is this is similar, a little bit similar to um, the rideshare industry, sort of saying, you know, these aren't employees, you know, these workers are are, are contractors, and you know, as you said, Facebook defending its its sort of right to be agnostic as to the type of content that's on its platform. I think to understand the Amazon story, you really need to understand personal injury law in the United States. Personal injury lawyers make money when they sue, uh, you know, people who have sold defective products when those people have money. And so the argument that when someone gets really badly hurt, and there's no one to go after just doesn't sit well with the public. This is a kind of gross out factor that people just don't like. Um, and so the obvious sort of target for a personal injury lawyer is, is someone really deep pocketed. Oftentimes, you know, it's, it's an insurer. Um, and, 
and the the intention is, of course, to keep people safe and to create liability where wrongdoing happens. So, um, you know, with without any judgment of of that industry and sort of the recourse that we take to the legal system in the U.S., it isn't surprising to me that that this is playing out. I think, as a kind of non-expert, Amazon's defense about you know, the sort of multi-jurisdiction, vast platform where sellers are quite unknown to them and and sitting in different operating out of different regions with different laws and sort of untouchable by the U.S. legal system is probably going to be its most powerful defense. But I think that these lawsuits will continue to happen as we see laws and regulation continuing to catch up with tech. I think you're absolutely right, Ruth. And I also think that if we think about this from a consumer viewpoint, As a consumer, if I purchase goods, and historically that would have been in my high street, I could have walked back into my high street and I could have demanded recompense, replacement goods or whatever. And so I can see Amazon coming up with a a secondary line of defense about the difference between fulfilled by Amazon and perhaps accepting some liability because the goods were in their warehouse, there's clearly a solid relationship, and that more remote distance purchase where those goods are supplied directly to you from somebody in another region. But I think from a consumer viewpoint, I think they're going to love it because it's an assumed liability. If I buy goods from you, the fact that you have had those goods manufactured elsewhere or the component parts supplied to you from elsewhere, I still hold you liable. If my car breaks, I don't care where the part was made, I go back to my car manufacturer and the liability rests there, even though the car is a sum of parts globally. Or or am I the only one who thinks like this because Nigel's smiling at me? (laughs) No, I'm I'm smiling because we've got a little visitor in Sam's room, which we won't point out too much, but it's very cute. Ben, what's your take here? Is there there a perspective on the one-stop shop element? If I'm buying something from my financial services provider, from my store or whatever else, back to Nikki's point, they are le- they are respond or they should be held responsible and should solve the problem. And is the difference here the difference between a faulty good that does no harm and the difference that does harm? Yeah, I think I think Amazon is but Amazon is a retailer, right? Yes, it has a marketplace, and yes, marketplace is structured differently legally. But consumers see Amazon as a retailer, and therefore Amazon does have a responsibility to make sure that the goods it's supplying to customers meet basic safety standards. Now, if Amazon is choosing to host sellers who are selling goods from all around the world, and some of those sellers are selling goods that don't comply with US or other countries' safety standards, Amazon is taking a risk, right? And this is Amazon as a company that's incredibly effective with data, right? They're able to make all sorts of recommendations to me about what products are right. So can Amazon not get its head around which manufacturers are manufacturing goods that don't comply with safety standards that pose potential risks and then put in place controls to protect customers from that? So I think, I mean, I'm no lawyer, but I think Amazon is on shaky ground here and trying to say it's got no responsibility on the other hand, is man, is it really responsible for, for the, as you said, Nigel, the harm that can come from faulty products? Maybe not, if it didn't know that those products were faulty. Yeah, we've got lots of comments on this one. Ruth, do you want to jump in first and then back to Sam? Yeah, I think, I mean, let's let's just remember what the substance of the case is, which is you should pull goods that have been recalled. So no one's saying that Amazon should be responsible for the component parts or even the goods. They're saying, use your data science skills to pick up when something has been recalled and don't sell it on your platform. Sam? 
And for what it's worth, I think that that trend of, of, of big companies taking responsibility for for the actions or the, the, the goings on underneath their aegis, be it a technical responsibility or something that's an assumed responsibility from the consumer, is a really powerful trend. As people look to companies to play the role of you know, the state in some way of, 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 of taking responsibility for their actions, taking responsibility for the health and well-being of their employees, taking responsibility for the health and well-being of their consumers. And it's something that companies just can't dodge. I think I think you're right. And I think that all of us would recognise that the law and even good practice has to catch up with tech. Um, and the fact that if you look at Amazon's growth and the, <clears throat> excuse me, the way its marketplace has expanded, it's way ahead of regulators and law enforcement and everything else. And as we catch up, but consumers expect our governments, our systems, our regulators to work faster. And it's not just Amazon, you know, it's it, Facebook. And, you know, if you think about it, you can buy something from every platform out there. Well, I was just going to say, so two things. One is it almost challenges the marketplace theory more broadly because you're a distributor at the end of the day and you go to certain platforms because you trust the brand. In Amazon's case, for me personally, it's the best return service for whatever I want. So if I want something, I can order it. It's here in hours and it goes back that evening if it doesn't fit or it's not right. What we're talking about, to Ruth's point, though, is this: if, if it hurts or kills someone. Now, in one instance, this if it's an exploding battery and it explodes and there's no damage, no physical damage or no personal damage, great. But what if it's a food product? And again, I've been involved in things over the years where if there's negative reviews that cause illness or whatever else, you get banned as a retailer on said platform. So again, you've got to be very careful about, or they've got to be very careful about the feedback that they get and how quickly they, they then remove future harm if they've known something about this previously. You can almost argue someone selling, dare I say, e-scooters on a mobile platform that kills someone shouldn't be selling e-scooters. I'm going to come off it at some point. But it, but if this law is passed, well, I guess what's the what's the impact to platforms? Do they do, do prices go up for consumers? Do margins go down for retailers in the middle? Who's where, where does this land, Ben? Yeah, I think you know what we're saying is platforms have to take responsibility for what takes place on those platforms. And if that means that the whole ecosystem has to pay a little bit more um, to protect customers, then so be it. And so prices, yes, do go up. That may mean that the cheapest supplier that isn't complying with safety standards in certain countries is no longer available to consumers in countries that have very high standards of, of you know, consumer protection and so on. So yes, it potentially reduces choice. You know, consumers in America who want to be protected by laws that stop their pajamas from being flammable should be protected by those laws. And if that means that uh, flammable pajamas are not available to American consumers, that's probably a good thing. Um, so yeah, I think it does. It does drive up costs of goods because the cheapest goods are not necessarily always fit for consumption. I mean, is there an alternative here, Nigel, for the insurance industry to step into the breach with product that says, here I go back to product again, but that says, do you want consumer purchase protection? You know, as a family where you shop on a number of different platforms, buying a wide range of goods, do you want to have an insurance in place if the worst happens and you buy some dodgy gummy bears or an exploding battery? There's loads of discussion around this one. I'm, I'm going to move this on. All I'll say on that is, I think people's basic expectation is it won't harm, hurt or kill you. And I think they are almost the, the table stakes that say, 
after that, you can choose what you have, but they at first and foremost, they shouldn't do these catastrophic things. It almost goes back to Ruth's point about drivers for Uber and Lyft and other gig workers that you have basic rights. And those basic rights, if you start to treat them as they should, come with an increased cost and someone's got to pay for that increased cost. So look, there's, there's a... It'd be interesting to watch this one and how it unfolds over the coming uh, over the coming months. But I think it could have a massive impact on the industry and what we do. And then who bears the price of that? You just have to look at other industries like the food industry to go, well, there's costs involved in doing those things. I will, I will move us on to a more positive story. And that is that the global insurance recovery will be faster and stronger than it was in 2008. So some good news at last. The global insurance industry is poised to recover more quickly and forcefully from the pandemic than it did after the 2008 financial crisis, despite obstacles such as low interest rates and inflation risk. According to Swiss Re's chief America's economist, unlike 2008, the pandemic did not weaken insurers' overall capitalization or financial strength, which allows companies to write new coverage and increase revenue. Writing new policies was more difficult in 2009 and 10 when insurers were reeling from capital losses as well, slow economic growth and depleted incomes of companies and individuals. In contrast, businesses and individuals now have more money from government stimulus and support programs and are more conscious as the need to buy protection against risks. I think, Ruth, you commented on this earlier as well. So shall we start with you on this one as an investor? What's your take on, on our overall recovery? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an optimistic story, sort of. I think when we're comparing to the recovery after the global financial crisis and saying it's going to be better, it's like, oh, okay, good, great. Um, Let's hope so. Yeah, but I think the big story here is that we have not seen yet, and and I think the prediction is that we are not going to see uh, large impacts from central banks tightening monetary policy, uh, which they have indicated that they will do and they would like to do in such a way that it doesn't totally freak out investors. Um, But we, you know, it remains to be seen. So, of course, that would result in interest rates rising, which is good for the insurance industry. But we're at this funny point right now where there is quite a bit of government stimulus uh, in kind of floating around, which is bolstering both uh, kind of individual family balance sheets as well as business balance sheets. And so, you know, we haven't seen a lot of the kind of credit risk that that was anticipated. And we have to see what happens as the stimulus eases or stops and the, yeah, and the central banks really change their policy to confront, uh, you know, what is, what is broadly perceived as rising inflation. I've heard nothing but optimism from the various financial analysts with whom I've spoken, which always, you know, leaves me with a little bit of skepticism. I've been watching closely over the last couple of days, the quarterly earnings come out as well. And broadly, they feel quite strong. I mean, there's, there's a lot still to go, but broadly, they feel like they're quite upbeat from the things that I've seen. One of my worry beads was very early on, and we've talked about it on the show quite a bit, was... Will people lose their faith in insurance because of they've not paid out? And I, and I know we'll get to one later, but Nikki, do I start with you? you? What's you know? Ruth talked about personal balance sheets. We have more money. We've all been through the crises. We now have a different perspective on what risk we're prepared to take or aware of at least. And so now we're all on the same same level playing field. What's your take on this? What are you seeing? 
certainly there is some skepticism amongst commercial customers. There's no question about that. They do read the headlines that say, you know, X insurer has failed to pay Y business and and the court cases that ensue. But I do think what it has led to is more understanding of what insurance can and could cover. And so I think that we are seeing a change in the way that that small business and business buys its insurance policies. They're, they're no longer saying, oh, I have to have some liability. I'll buy some of that. They're actually thinking about what is the worst? Because let's face it, none of us ever did, you know, disaster recovery plan tested a pandemic. So I think they're starting to understand more about what their policy covers. I also think that we're starting to see some insurtech and fintech moving into that SME space, and that's going to help. Um, thus far, certainly in the UK, that's been predominantly personal lines based. And obviously, Sam is here because from, you know, from a life basis. Um, but I think we're going to start seeing some more of that investment heading into that commercial space. Sam? Yeah, just on that, I mean, we've seen a 10x uptick in the number of SMEs that we cover over the past 18 months. These are businesses that never had any benefits before. Businesses that had never purchased life cover for their employees. And suddenly, employee well-being, employee insurance providing financial stability is top of the agenda. And it's been amazing to see the kind of companies that, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100, 200 employees, they've never bought benefits before. And now they're realizing the importance of having the appropriate cover and looking at the content of that policy. What does it actually do for me? What impact does it have on my employees on a daily basis? And, and it's been amazing to be able to help with that. I, I love this. And, and this does this go back to actually you're not just a life insurance organization you're actually a way of engaging people which actually becomes more important as you're all now remote and distributed and whatever else it's spot on it's been a massive part of our of our the narrative that we're bringing to those companies is bringing protection protection is obviously important god forbid should the worst happen you're taking the phone call from your from, from a bereaved family member you want to say yes we had life insurance here's the details you're not going to be destitute you're going to be covered but at the same time you know, that's that's the worst case scenario. But for a, on a daily basis, you want your company to be one that's got this positive energy, one where health and well-being is at the centre, where you're building a culture that's around people improving themselves and taking those simple steps every day to just, you know, be their best self. Um, and companies are really tapping into the importance of that and also the bottom line results that come from it. Because when your workforce are happy and healthy and engaged, it, you know, it doesn't just doesn't just mean that they they get they have a smile on the way out of bed. It also means that they perform better. And it's interesting because some policies in the UK bought by SMEs didn't cover home working or equipment that wasn't in the office premises. And so again, mm. back to product, I think these companies are looking more closely, as you say, Sam, about what am I buying and what am I buying it for, and what value is it giving to me as a business to my employees. Imagine being the employer who either had to take the risk of all of their technology being uninsured or forcing all their staff into the office. I mean, I, I have a whole different conversation. I mean, I'm sat here at the same desk I have been for 18 months. I've never been fixed to the same desk in my entire career. And I'm sitting here going, I go to work and I'd have a health and safety session to make sure my monitor was the right height and whatever else. And I had the right chair. I do wonder about things like liability if we're now going to move into a, you know, an at-home working mode or whatever else. We saw people like, uh, Crawford this week announced flexible working for their entire uh, staff base. So I do think there's going to be new products that come out to support these things going forward with new products, new opportunity, new ways of engaging. I'm going to finish on um, investments. And, and I guess 
If I start with you, Ben, this huge amount of funding that we've seen going in, not least being led by folks like Sam, who's smiling away in the background here. Um, do, do you think this is one of the successes out of all of this that's going to help drive us and, and lead us out of this cycle? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in, in the insurance industry was slow to sort of see what was happening elsewhere in fintech and the other opportunities. And yet there's this massive opportunity, as Sam has been saying, to use the data that you can have about people and about their activities and so on to create engagement. You know, insurance was something people used to buy and forget. Now with data, you can really get involved. And then when you have this connection between physical well-being, mental well-being, and financial well-being, there's a real opportunity to help people, not only protect them from risk, but help them avoid some of those risks in the first place. Um, and so I'm loving the, you know, the money that's coming into InsureTech because insurance should be a real force for good um, in people's lives. And sometimes it hasn't been so much. It's just been something that people have sort of filed in a drawer. I think it's a huge opportunity for insurance to be more involved in helping people avoid risk. Um, not just compensating them when things go wrong, but helping them avoid risk in the first place. I see Ruth nodding away. Who's the real winner here, Ruth? I mean, there's, there's been an, an investor bonanza in terms of what's going in. I've not seen many net new startups, which I think is a, a sign of the maturity of the market. But I have seen plenty of follow-on series and some big rounds from people all over the world, to be fair. Who, who's really winning here? Is it the investors is the consumers or is, it, is everyone benefiting, benefiting from this? Well, the investors don't win until there's an, a liquidity event. So, you know, we can all <laughs> get really excited as investors, but, uh, you know, the companies also need to execute and perform. Um, so I think that, you know, the insurance industry, despite, I think, the news story that we're covering, it cannot be complacent. I think that it is an industry which has not adapted to contemporary technology where there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, both to better serve consumers, to operate more efficiently, to create new products based on new sources of data and emerging risks, uh, as Ben said, to help people to avoid harm uh, rather than just insuring against it. And I think that what I have noticed and observed is not only kind of institutional investors being alive to those opportunities and to the big gap between where the insurance industry is and where it could be, but also the insurers themselves. And I think that, you know, they're maybe breathing a sigh of relief that, um, you, know, you know, for better or for worse, we're doing a bit better than we uh, are quite a bit better than we were after the financial crisis. But, you know, they, they got a lot of wood to chop. So, so summary there sounds like, thank God it's not as bad as 2008. And I think we should congratulate you on the most eloquent way of saying insurers haven't invested in technology for a very long time and they're now playing catch up as quickly as possible. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> With that, I'm going to move us on as we're getting to the end of the show. So to round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover in detail, but still deserve a shout out. Ben, do you want to start? Yes. So one of the stories is about the business interruption saga, which is not over. So restaurant UK restaurant chain Various Eateries uh, alleges that Allianz Insurance uh, owes them £16.4 million for losses uh, that the business ran up during the pandemic, as opposed to the £2.5 that the insurer has already paid out to the restaurateur's claim. Uh, so Various Eateries has based its claim on the Supreme Court, the UK Supreme Court's ruling in 2021 which was brought against insurers that were refusing to pay business interruption claims during the pandemic. Despite insurers arguing that non-damage business interruption claims 
were not intended to cover global pandemics. The restaurant business has argued its lawsuit that each lockdown and each set of restrictions should be classed as separate claim events. So this is a you know this is a really tricky one because um, you know Allianz has paid out, but the, uh, the the restaurant chain is saying, hey, well actually it was kind of three lockdowns, and hey, we can claim that this was damage, this was interruption, and there was a there was a disease, so we can kind of claim three times, and so we can claim a lot more. There's no right answer here. There's no winner here. I think we're going to see this one go to court because it's not an easy one to resolve, and, and the insurance industry has got every reason to to push back against this and and claimants have got every reason to try their luck and see what they can get. Interesting use of words, try their luck. As an insurance guy and person who's written contracts in the past, that's probably not something I've uh, tried to avoid. But we'll leave that one there. Next up, speaking about contracts, Aon and Willis cancel merger. Now, this is one that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, Global brokerage giants Aon and Willis Towers Watson have reached a mutual agreement to put a stop in the proposed mega merger after reaching an impasse with the DOJ. The business combination was first announced the 9th of March 2020, but over the past 16 months, the giants have come up against hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. So following the termination of the business combination agreement, both firms will now move forward independently. Aon will also pay a billion dollars termination fee to Willis Towers Watson, and both companies will provide a further financial updates and outlooks on the respective Q2 2021 earnings calls. Now, this has been going on for quite some time, and there's been lots of views in the market whether this was good or bad. For all those that are following this, you'll have also seen there was also a series of other transactions, whether it was Gallagher's or others, that were doing transactions as a result to make sure that this could still go ahead. Many of those have also now been cancelled. So lots of blood, sweat and tears, I think, has gone into this one. It's a really interesting, this, I've spoken to folks on both sides of the fence, whether it was good or bad. Um, it's really interesting to see after all this time. I believe the European courts had approved it, but it ran aground in North America. The quicker we now get back to normal and move forward, I think the better. But I don't think this is the last we're going to see from M&A activity in the insurance space. If anything, it's just going to heat up. So it'd be interesting to see where this goes in the next 12 months when we look back. Maybe nothing of this size, but I don't believe for a minute, if you look at some of the press from folks like um, AJG, they will be looking to deploy their capital in different ways. Finally, Lloyd's makes history with a new appointment. So this is from Insurance Business Magazine. Lloyd's has announced the appointment of Vicky Carter as Deputy Chair of Lloyd's Council. Carter will be the first woman in the company's 335-year history to hold the post. Vicky's worked for the Lloyds market for 40 years and began her career in medicine before moving into reinsurance broking in 1980. Chairman of the Lloyds said that the appointment recognises her extraordinary professional contribution to the Lloyds market and global reinsurance industry over the many decades. And her leadership will be vital as we progress our work in building the world's most advanced insurance marketplace. I mean, this is fantastic news all round, considering the long history of an only male leaders at Lloyds. Now, the market's been famously described over the years as pale, male and stale. What do we think, folks? Nikki, shall I start with you? I'm, I'm sure we're going to get a quiet, re- shy response from you on this. But what, what do you think? Hallelujah. You know, she was probably the best person for the job. 
I'm delighted that finally, you know, having started in the industry when we weren't allowed into Lloyd's at all, weren't allowed to broker the box, it's jolly nice that we've uh, joined the modern world, even if they're a couple of centuries late. And I wish her every success, you know, at a, at a, at a personal level, you know, I, I, I think she'll be good for Lloyd's. Ben? Yeah, I think Lloyd's had a reputation as being one of the last bastions of really bad male behaviour. And obviously, it's fixed a lot of that over the years. But this is this is great, but it probably should have happened 10, 15 years ago. Um, but fantastic that it's happened now. Sam? Unbelievable news. I mean, you know, we're constantly coming up against diversity in the insurance industry as a blocker, seeing um, industry changing slowly in terms of the diversity of voices. Obviously, you know, female inclusion is a core part of that. And it's just amazing to see. Am I allowed to ask the tricky question of should we be making headlines anymore with male, female, gay, straight or other others being appointed in roles? No, we shouldn't. I mean, the, the, the cynic in me wants to ensure that she is at least earning the same as the previous male incumbent, if not more. But that may just be some old fashioned insurance cynicism coming through. But you're absolutely right, Nigel. Wouldn't it be nice to get to a stage where nobody comments on your gender, sexuality, race, religion? Wouldn't it just be nice to say, whoopee, Nigel's on the podium? You know, we can say Nigel's on the podium. We don't feel we have to categorise you into, oh, it's a male of this age group or, you know, we don't have to say that. And it would be great if we could have that all the time. Ruth, do you want the final word? I mean, it's one of our core values at Anthemus, you know, diversity and inclusion, you know, complex questions. I think representation's super important. I agree with the comments that everyone's made and, uh, you know, hope that it's more broadly distributed. I think the regardless, we we all wish her a well, but b I think whilst I don't want to be reporting that a individual has got a job because of her gender or otherwise, I think we still need to highlight the fact that we are still very very male orientated and it needs to change. I'll finish on a very uh, a quick story. My wife came home with my daughter. She's on summer holidays, obviously, and they've been to the stationery store and she got a new notepad. She's eight, so she loves drawing. But on the front of it, it said. Behind every good woman is herself. And she wanted to know why that made a difference. And Emma, my wife, explained to her why that, ma- why that mattered, which I thought was wonderful. So um, on that, that wraps up the new show for this time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Websites, Twitter, LinkedIn, synagogues. Sam, do you want to go first? <laughs> With that list of accolades, Golders Green Synagogue is where you'll find me on a Saturday morning and most mornings, in fact. But from a professional perspective, most easily reached on LinkedIn. Just search for Sam Fromson. Um, and to learn more about Ulife, please just go to www.ulife.com. Ruth? Yeah, you can follow me personally on Twitter. Twitter handle is Fox News, F-O-X-E underscore news. Uh, and to find out more about Anthemus, you can go to anthemus.com. Nikki. LinkedIn is is a great place to start. Nikki Daniels and uh, easyis.co.uk is the website. And finally, Ben, where can we find you? So I'm Benjamin Ensor on LinkedIn, or you can uh, find out more about 11FS at 11FS.com. And you can find me on Twitter posting my workouts and so much more at Nigel Walsh. Thank you to all of our guests today. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make the show better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11 colon FS or InsureTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>